Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Anything But Typical podcast. And I can't wait for you to hear the story of Jeff Wolfberg and as we unpack some of the day in the life and the amazing journey, actually, of, of Jeff. Um, he's a cool entrepreneur and works with a lot of cool entrepreneurs as well. Um, but before we get into all of those details, which Ben will do, um, I'm going to start with this question for you, Jeff. So you are at one of your wife, Allah's uh, art exhibits. And while she is engrossed in conversation with somebody else, you're just milling around and somebody is actually talking about you and they don't realize that you are within earshot of them. What is it that you would hope that they would be saying about you, Jeff? Okay. Well, I'll tell you the, the experience I had, at, not at my wife's art show, but when I did overhear somebody talking about me, it was interesting because what they said is that Jeff gets things done. And although I was pleased to hear that, in the context, it was probably appropriate. I think today I'd like to, somebody to say, Jeff makes things happen. Mm. And, and it seems to be what I do when uh, most everything I, I do, everything in the business world that I'm involved with, Today, my job is to make things happen. Um, sometimes dragging a business owner along, kicking and screaming, <laughs> but generally motivating and, and just making, making it possible for things to happen. So, Jeff, I'm gonna take us off before I even get into the intro. Um, the, the difference in your mind between Jeff gets things done and Jeff makes things happen. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, to me, the difference is, is, is that getting things done makes me the, the doer and, you know, you can rely on me to execute. I think when I say, and, and I think it's a cool thing to say about somebody. I mean, I would say that about Gary for sure, because <laughs> I know he gets things done. But um, makes things happen is more in tune with, with a, a lot more of not execution, but motivating and creating an environment, uh, creating a situation. Uh, where people are able to be successful. Yeah. And, and it's very satisfying when I make people successful. So I like to make things happen. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I picked up on the nuance of how you, when you first hear those two sentences, it can be very closely related, but I love how you unpacked it there. So I appreciate it. So, um, so we're off to a great start, two minutes in and I'm already taking us off the path. But um, I'll give everybody that, that doesn't know Jeff yet a, a quick intro. Uh, so Jeff's had two startups where he built both of them into industry leaders and has had successful exits. He has led companies with a range of one employee to over a thousand employees. And we're going to dive into the different leadership styles of, of different sizes of companies, things like that. And he's currently the president of, C, of COO Focus of the Carolinas, where he runs peer advisory boards. He coaches and consults, but mainly with closely held and family run businesses. So Jeff, I appreciate you being on the show. I want to start with that first one on the list with your startup experience. So can you describe beginning your first company? Take us into that journey right at the very beginning of your first, your first entrepreneurial experience. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I'm going to take you back just for a second because I grew up in a family business, which I was fully expecting to go into the family business for my career. Okay. Only they sold it while I was a junior in college. So that came to a screeching halt. And a family friend showed me a product that was being used in France and suggested I could do something with it here. So in, in terms of the beginning, it was, well, here's this product that very frankly, when I did this, it struck me as a fad product because it was related to the energy crisis back in, back, uh, in the late 70s. And I figured, you know, it's only going to have a short life and let's see what I can do with it. And where would it take me, which I didn't know. Um, so I found somebody to make it. And I thought that was the easy part. And the hard part would be finding someone to sell it for me. Um, it turned out since it was a very hot product. And by the way, the product turned out is now known as an industrial strip door. It's the clear plastic that hangs all over dock doors and warehouses and places like that. And it did become an industry standard. Um, I didn't invent it, I borrowed it from France. So that's okay. Um, 
But I thought the hard part would be finding distributors and finding people to sell it. But I went to the who's who of the material handling industry and everybody, everybody said, I'm ready to go. I found all kinds of people ready to, to embark on a business of selling these things. The challenge, which I never thought would be hard, was getting it made. I had somebody to make it. They said, oh, sure, we can do it. But, you know, here I am, 22 years old, thinking, relying on these people that had been making products in the plastics industries for years, figuring they know how to do it. They didn't. There was a lot of learning curve in it, and I had to go through that learning curve with them. I learned a lot about plastics and rubber at that time, um, which has been valuable throughout my career. But it, it was unique enough and different enough that it didn't fit the mold of any other product that was being made. So we had a learning curve. So that was the hardest part. Selling it was easy. Collecting the money a little tougher than I thought, it, thought about it. <laughs> the vendor wanted to be paid, even though sometimes they shouldn't have been because their quality was off. Um, but then... Ultimately, I got an understanding with my customers and got the money in. So there was a good, there was a benefit to that learning curve in that, because I've told people two years later, all my, all my, the people that can make the product became my competitors and I was a middleman and I had to get out. But I had another two years grace because they had to go through the same learning curve that, the, that my supplier went through. And so it was four years before they could sell a good product. And at that point, uh, Gary knows the story. I uh, was approached by the by my supplier. Says, "Well, we can do bigger things with it because we're a big international company." Gave me the story. I was getting a price squeeze, so it was very easy for me to come to the decision to sell to them, yep. uh, and so I did. And that so, kind of kind of led me out of it. The profits were being squeezed out, which was surprising back then to have a product life cycle go so quickly and be right. in the saturation stage so quickly. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I want to dive deeper into that exit, but even before we get there, you have the unique experience of growing up in a family business that, that clearly carried value, right? It was able to be sold while you were in college. Um, so what were some of the things that you learned growing up working in a family business that you were able to apply now as an entrepreneur? Why? There's a few things. We'll just um, take up the rest of the episode. <laughs> it could. <laughs> I, I, I got a good work ethic out of it first to start with. Mm -hmm. I, I had a, a father that, you know, worked six days a week, 12 hours a day. Um, and, I, and I learned how to um, be that or be able to understand why and how. Um, so I really got a, I got a very good work ethic out of it. And I also got learned quickly that integrity is everything. Mm. And even though it's a small, it wasn't even that small, but a family business, we had 200 employees. Um, as a family business, you really, really had to hold your integrity up all the time. And there were a couple occasions where we had decisions in the business that would have been compromises, financially better for us, but um, might've caused some real problems with employees um, might have made things difficult down the road, uh, but we were but more concerned about the immediate financial need. And, and I learned to do the right thing, keep your integrity intact, um, uh, don't compromise your values. Um, and I think that's kind of what took me, took me forward. Yeah. Um, and, and one very good lesson, which kind of carried into the, to my first business, when the customer owes you money, don't hesitate to ask for it. It's your money. And I always find myself going, it's your money. You know, they're just keeping your money. So, so don't be afraid to ask. <laughs> yep. You know, one, one quick question. And um, the answer is probably obvious, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And this is one that Ben had thought up. But so the fact that you grew up in a family business and then got surprised it seems like your head was already thinking, all right, I'm going into that business. Did becoming an employee for somebody other than your father, your family's business, was that ever a consideration? I thought about it. I looked around. I didn't feel the corporate world didn't feel too good to me at that time. Um, you know, 
I, I knew if I went into the family business, I, I, I do f frankly remember the, uh, the interview when I was 16 years old, when well, maybe I was older, my grandparents wanted to know if I had the stuff to be the leader of that company. Mm. And they literally interviewed me. I didn't know it was an interview. <laughs> and, but I got it very clear that, that leadership was going to be in my future fairly quickly. So uh, if, if the business held up. And, and I just couldn't get that feeling anywhere else. And that's kind of why I, at that point, chose not to be an employee. Interesting. That's good. Yeah. So, so let's go back to what you were hitting on um, about five minutes ago or so of, of the actual selling of that first business. So you had already talked about a little bit of what prompted it. Uh, but did prior to that, did you have in your mind the idea of wanting to be able to build something that was able to sell or was this something that kind of happened organically for you? Kind of happened organically. At that point, I never had a vision about selling it. I had a vision about building it and mm -hmm. keeping it going, um, making it larger and larger and successful. Um, so, so selling never really occurred to me. But frankly, since I had one supplier, and we were kind of in it together as partners. Uh, when they approached me to sell it, it's, it's almost like I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Um, and and it, from my experience set, and it's still, you know, I'm pretty young at this time, and my experience set was pretty narrow. Back in those days, um, there were certain companies going around um, operating, and Sears is the best example, back when there was a Sears, and they were powerful. Um, they'd build up a huge piece of your business. Um, you'd, you'd be a supplier to them. And my family resisted Sears, by the way. But you'd be supplying 70, 80% of your, your volume would be going to Sears. And then they'd walk in one day and say, here's the office for your, offer for your business. Take it or we're moving it to somebody else. Wow. And um, kind of, it was a little in reverse with, with me, but it kind of felt the same way. It was very friendly and very likable. I joined that company immediately when I sold it to him and I stayed there for four years. So um, it, it, it worked out and it was a very friendly transaction. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't a whole lot of haggling. There wasn't any uh, arguments about receivables or employees or anything like that. Um, it was just a real clean and, and, and simple deal. I was, I was fortunate because they really could have taken advantage of me and, they, and, and I don't feel they did. So I, I want to jump in with one of those things that you just said before. I know Ben's going to go into another thing, but so you exit and you stay on for four years. A couple questions. One is, was that part of the deal that you had to be on there for four years? And then second question is, is what were some of the biggest adjustments that you had to make personally from going from, I own this baby to I'm working as part of my workout or whatever. Yeah. So first off, I understand they asked me to stay for six months. Okay. <laughs> um, minimum. And they said, maybe I'd stay longer if I wanted to. And um, I transitioned my business very quickly, a couple of months. And, and so it's just kind of hanging around. And um, I think I've told Gary the story. I sold in my business, it's a $4 million revenue company, and I'm 26 years old. And a new group president showed up, and he had just sold him his $300 million business. Now, he was 27. And so I went from being top of the world to the bottom. <laughs> but he asked me to work with him on some, uh, for lack of a better term, turnaround activity. There was uh, quite a number of operating units. I think it were 16 that we worked on over the next four years that strategically were in trouble, financially in trouble. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of issues. You know, a lot of them were marketing, a lot of them were manufacturing, but, but, but they had problems. And he said, he looked around and I'm standing there. He says, where's my team? We have a lot of, a lot of work to do. Well, his team was me and another guy who was a uh, an age contemporary. I think he just got his MBA from Harvard. And the three of us started working on these 16 businesses to fix them. So I hung around for four years because I was having fun. Mm. And he brought something, now we're talking the early 80s here. And he brought something with him that um, nobody had talked about before. 
in fact, nobody talked about until the early 90s, we talked about transformational leadership. And, and he taught me transformational leadership and man, transformational management. And we began to work on each business. We'd set some visions, we'd get the missions, we'd set some goals, we'd work on the details to, make every, to get everything aligned organizationally and, get, and, and help them adjust their sales problems, market problems, process problems, all of that. And we'd get them off and running, keep them on a fairly short leash for a while, but we'd get them off and running. And so we were practicing transformational management in the early 80s. This 27-year-old with the $300 million company, it came from him. Now, I will share with you, in 1996, in my conversation with Michael Porter, who trademarked transformational leadership, I was telling him about my experience. And he responded to me with, yeah, he says, uh, I didn't invent it. I just got the trademark. <laughs> but he had, and he had not met the guy I was working with, had not heard about what we were doing. Uh, he says, but I did see a few other people doing it around the country, and that's where it came from. So, you know, but that, why did I stay, Gary? That's cool stuff. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I really did. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just want to say one, one more thing in there, and that is, all three of us have run companies and we all have said at various times that I think that running business can and should be fun. And I love the fact that you said that because you weren't staying in there at the minimum. I got to be here six months and then I'm punching out. Mm -hmm. But having something that kept you intellectually stimulated with people that it seems like you enjoyed working with on problems that utilized your unique skill sets and giftings and given the freedom to do that guess what that's kind of fun <laughs> so. absolutely yeah <laughs> so and, and by the way every business i've run it's been fun <laughs> there are days so it's, it's not so fun but it's fun <laughs> yeah. so then so you're there for four years and then shortly after you you're then within the second startup right so Right, uh, not too long after. Right, exactly. So, so take us through that and what that piece looks like, um, because I wanna I wanna kind of compare and contrast the first and second startups for you. So, give us a little background there. Okay, so I'm I, you know I, I'm I'm known already for an energy saving product, and so I bumped into another product while work, while while doing what I was doing at the, the 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 Fortune 500 company I was working with, and it was in the uh, window industry. It was another energy savings device. Uh, it's still around, uh, but it was definitely a fad project product, and it was a, a magnetic window that was used on the interior of people's homes. Um, it was tricky. The, the real secret of it was everybody thought the magnets kept the room cold, warmer in the in the winter, uh, but in reality, it wasn't. It was the it was the um, plastic that was keeping the room uh, warmer. The magnetic was kind of a, a you know, a, made people believe that it was a seal like your refrigerator, uh, but it wasn't what did it. And so I put together that business that was much more difficult. I ended up taking it to the home improvement industry. And although it was a lot of fun and I enjoyed, um, uh, again, I contracted out manufacturing. It was not in my skill set to make that either. Um, it was a lot of fun to do it. And I enjoyed the, uh, the bulk of the people I worked with. Um, it, it wasn't as, it wasn't as fun for very long. <laughs> so, but, but I did package it up to sell it. I did have people that wanted to buy it, that they were more, more into the home improvement industry than me. And I'll tell you very frankly, uh, it was in-home sales. Um, my, I had dealers who sold it in home. And, um, uh, if you ever saw the movie, the Tin Men, uh, where they're selling aluminum siding, it was pretty accurate. Yeah. So it was very aggressive sales, uh, very late nights if you were going to work in that industry. And uh, got a little concerned about the very aggressive sales. Literally got a call from a county prosecutor in California because of what one of my dealers had done. And although my lawyer said, don't help them, you're, you're taking a big risk. I wasn't going to risk my integrity and I did help them. And they did go after somebody from my dealer and 
I don't think he got jail time, but but he he definitely had to uh, make amends with the with the person that he had hurt. And at that point, I felt it was time to get out, and so I elected I elected to sell. Uh, what I did very differently that time is uh, I did clean up my receivables quite a bit because you was working with some tough people. Uh, home improvement uh, construction industry don't pay fast. Um, I cleaned up my receivables. I cleaned up my customer list. I engaged my employees with stay packages so that when the buyer, that I, when I could find a buyer, uh, my people would be ready and willing to go with them. Uh, and I felt that the only way to really keep the dealers was if they had the same team to work with initially anyhow. So I put it in a position where it was more valuable to the buyer. Um, entirely different than the first time around. Yeah. How so, old were you when, when you did that, that, Jeff? I would have, I was 30, 31. <laughs> Something like, no, maybe, maybe 32. I don't know. I've lost track of those days. <laughs> At the ripe old age of 32. And the reason I asked that is, and sold his first company at 24. I was the late bloomer. I did my first turnaround at 28. <laughs> but what's interesting is, you know, we, we have uh, listeners, I think, that kind of span the gamut, but we do have a fair amount of uh, millennials as well, whether they're owners or not. Um, and I just think that, you know, a couple data points from the, your story, you were 26 you know, and you had a, a 27 year old guy that had a $300 million company. And, you know, I think, um, and that was back before, you know, the millennials hit the scene, you know, they weren't even glimmering anybody's eye yet. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have PCs yet. Come on. Right. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't a Silicon Valley startup <laughs> that he had. And you were uh, Cleveland, if I remember right, right? I was in Ohio. At that point, I was in Akron, which is a little worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's great if you were selling Goodyear tires. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go ahead and take it, Ben. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. You're perfect. So you've already hit on a few different things, Jeff, of lessons that you took and how you, you approached that second business differently, right? Mm -hmm. You You knew that this was something that you wanted to package for a sale. You cleaned everything up before you went out to find somebody, right? Which is different right. than the first time of somebody coming to you. So, so what was that experience like for you after you'd done all the prep work ahead of time of making sure that the business was ready to be sold? What was your experience like going out and, and looking for and finding somebody to, to buy the company? What was interesting because what I really was doing was uh, I did it on my own. Um, I had ads in the Wall Street Journal, which um, which annoyed one of my relatives because my name was in the Wall Street Journal more than his, <laughs> <laughs> and he was trying to be he was trying to get him for success. I was paying for mine, right. <laughs> but back then that's one of the was one of the good ways to do it. And I networked. I I, I talked to people that I knew and trusted in the home improvement industry to uh, to find it. But I, I mean, literally. My uncle was livid that I was <laughs> that I was in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> those um, are not inexpensive ads. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just saying those are not inexpensive ads going uh, to the Wall Street Journal. They were classified. No, they weren't inexpensive, but but they weren't outrageous at the time either. I, I, I imagine they're quite a bit more now. So. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean that that's how I did it, and I entertained offers. I gave them information. Um, wasn't so worried about keeping my name confidential. I, at that point, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Um, you know, um, I did talk with one competitor, uh, but they elected to not participate. It didn't reveal too much to the competitor, but they elected not to not participate. So in the end, it was one of the dealers that bought it. Oh, interesting. Um, let's pivot a little bit more into leadership because I love the range that you, that you've had in your, your different experience levels, right? Of family run companies, extremely large, extremely small, things like that. So let's talk first of the skill sets. Can you discuss some of the different skill sets that you've seen that are necessary for 
running a small size business versus a midsize or a large size, things like that. What are, what are some of those differentiating skill sets that you've seen? Well, it's interesting when you're running a small business, you have to really understand what everybody does. You don't necessarily have to know how they do it, but you have to be able to understand what they do. And you're telling them, you know, you're, you're, you're leading them yourself. You're working with them on their, you know, on, on what they do. In some cases, you're simply telling them what to do and others you're setting goals and visions and making, you know, getting them to, to motivating them to do what you want. Um, and it's very easy when a small company to do that. It all runs on personality. It all runs on, on your, your personableness, your, your individual warmth, things like that. And, and I think that, um, not to say you have to be warm and, pu- and fuzzy to have a small business, but you better get along with everybody. If, you're, um, if you can't do that, you're gonna have a lifetime of turnover and it's gonna hold you back. And so you have to have that ability to relate and work with, with a small group of people. Um, when you get to the medium-sized business, then you're a whole lot of uh, more leadership, more motivation, more goals, uh, making sure they know what to do and a lot more time spent making sure they did what they're supposed to be doing, that they are working towards the goals and doing, working, doing the work independently. You also have to bring in a little more complex processes. You have to, uh, well, they can't say complex. You have to start thinking about using the tools of lean manufacturing and more quality tools. Whereas with the smaller company, it becomes a much more individualized and personal ability. Mm-hmm. The medium side, you've got to bring those tools in. Um, a large size, you've got to have them absolutely. But, but you do need them in a mid-sized business as well. Um, the biggest problem I find with people moving up from small to medium or medium to large businesses is that very famous line of the people who got, to, got you here can't get you where you're going. And, you know, some people just have limited bandwidth. But the reality is the difference between managing in a mid-sized company is your managers are managing people telling them what to do. Basically what you would be doing in a small business. Mm -hmm. When you get to a larger business, now you have, for lack of a better term, managers managing managers. So each of them, you may call them directors, it doesn't matter which vice presidents, doesn't matter what you call them, but they have to get things done through others who are still getting things done through others. And the hardest leap I've found for, for people that have management roles in a company, whether they're in a small or mid-sized company, is being able to basically manage a manager. And those are the people that can't get you where you're going, is they have an inability to work with others and, and, and allow them to be managing other people. There's a tendency, and I've had it many times in my career, where I manage through people. You know, I just go right through them. Yeah, they're your people. You tell them what to do. You know, I tell them what to do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's very hard to resist that. And in terms of a leadership, that, that, that's, that's the big challenge. Yeah. When you get to the larger company, you have a lot more tools at your disposal. You have a lot more tools to work with. You can make, um, like I said, you learn, lean process can work great for you. Make bigger use of KPIs. Um, to help you manage and, and understand what's going on. In the midsize, you use KPIs. You use KPIs always, but they indicate different things to you. They're giving you different information. Yep. Um, but that's what I found. And, and I always told people, though, especially in the larger company, companies that, that, that I've run, um, 10% of my job was ceremonial. Okay. So, uh, probably... Um, 60 to 70% was motivational. Okay. When I was asked by um, uh, some people at, when, I, when I went to business school, and I went to business school under a program with a large uh, English company. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't get my MBA out of college. It came later. And they were interviewing me for going to the program. And they said, tell me what your job is. You're president of this company. What, what's your job? And my answer was cheerleader. I didn't know if I had the right answer or not. And I did have the right answer because they were all about transformational leadership and they knew I was doing it. (laughs) So, I mean, it it was quite an entertaining uh, 
adventure, but you, you spend a lot of time as a cheerleader. When you get your team aligned and they were all rowing in the right direction, I mean, it, it's, it's wonderful. Organizational alignment, you, you spend all, if you can get it properly aligned, you become a cheerleader. So Gary probably knows this. You're gonna ask me my favorite business book? Yeah. Boys of the Boat, the story of the 1936 uh, Olympics in Germany. It is not a business book, but it really is. It's all about organizational alignment and teams. Everybody knows how it ends. They won. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's a great, it's a great, business book in terms of what it teaches you about teams, about organizational alignment, about how to have, how to bring people together to accomplish goals together. You know, the commonality, the similarities, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So yep. but that's when you're doing that, you're, that, that's really what you need for, for midsize and large companies. Yeah. So when you're talking about your, evolution as a leader because you were exposed to transformational leadership extremely early, right? Right. Um, how has your leadership style evolved throughout your career and some of the things that you were able to take early on that you're applying now as you coach and, and consult with other companies? Well, well there's a, quite a number of things, I suppose, in that, in that evolution, but I, I think the biggest thing I developed over time was, was greater patience and more understanding. Um, it, it may sound kind of silly, but there's, there's rarely something that surprises me anymore. I've seen so many things and I think I've underst understand what happens in working with people and running organizations. I know so much about managing quality, managing, managing production, managing sales. I mean, I went and got certified as a sales trainer so I could turn around the sales organization of a company. Um, even though I was the president of the company, I wanted to do it from inside. So, so I got a good understanding of all of that. And so um, the, the, my, my real evolution as a leader is that I can understand these things and that um, I have the patience to make change and get people that can make things happen. Mm -hmm. or develop people so they can make things happen. And, and, that, and that was really it. So my, my assistant from, uh, administrative assistant from 89, okay, so it goes back a ways, would tell people that I could throw furniture, okay, that you could upset me to the point of throwing furniture, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and today, I can hardly raise my voice. I don't need to but I can hardly raise my voice. I have to work at it to raise my voice. I've developed the patience. I've developed the, the even temper. And, and it, again, it's just about applying the tools and the resources I have uh, um, to the problems at hand. Yeah. So I, kn I know Gary's going to dive into CEO focus here in a second, but I want to ask one more specifically on, on leadership. What is one piece of advice concerning leadership that you would be giving to a green or a new, new CEO or president? Somebody that's fresh in that position of, of the top level leadership. What's that one or two things that you would make sure that they know going into it? They have to listen. You have to listen to what your people say and every problem they bring you, you don't need to, you're not supposed to solve them. You make them bring you solutions with them. But if they, if they have a problem and it's important enough for them to bring to you, then it's important enough for you to listen to it. You may send them back to solve it on their own. You may give them a piece of advice or you may say, don't bring me the problem. Don't bring a problem to me unless you have a solution with it. But it's important enough to them, you've got to listen. Otherwise, you lose your bench. You lose your, lose your people. Yeah. So that's, the, that's, the one, that's probably the biggest piece of advice. Yep. A close second is this. Don't be so stupid that you think you know everything. Okay. And I run into this with consultants, with leaders, everybody. And I'm a big fan of documenting processes. And I don't know how many times I'll talk to a company or a, a, the owner of the company and I'll say, we need to document your sales process. We need to document your, your manufacturing process. 
we need to get this down so we can, we can maximize it. And they'll go and they'll write up a chart and they'll go step one, step two, step three, they're all the way through, they've documented the process. When the reality is, and Gary's smiling because he knows this, you better go ask your employees how things are done. They know it way better than you're ever gonna know it. Yep. And what you think is happening in your operation, if you think that's the way it is, I can guarantee you it's not. And so it's all about trust your employees. They know what's going on. And if you want to, if you want to document a process, ask them. Let them tell you how it's being done. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean you can't go fit, make it better. In fact, you will. Keep them involved and they'll make it better. And it'll be great. Hand them a procedure and a process for doing things and say, do it this way. I created it they'll toss that away and just keep doing it the way they were doing because they, you don't know anything. Yeah. Okay. Your people are smart, except I, that they're smart. You got to trust them. I've heard on that is to exactly what you're saying is I've heard of somebody going in and asking the CEO, the sales manager and the associate the same question, right? Like map out what that mm -hmm. process is and you get three different answers. Absolutely. So. Always, always, always. Yep. But it's all, you know, and somebody said, oh, employee involvement is, is employee engagement is overrated. That's what I would hear all the time. And I'd say, this isn't employee engagement, it's employee involvement. They know what's happening, you don't. Yep. It's pretty easy to, all you have to do is walk, walk a, a, the, the, whoever it is, the, the, the owner or the president or whoever out to one person in the organization and say, Ask him to tell you how, it, how something's done and have them tell you how something's done. And yep. they'll realize they don't know what's happening. <laughs> yep. Wow, what a, I mean, there, there's a treasure trove of wisdom in this one. Um, you know, your, your quote of, don't be so stupid that you think you know everything. <laughs> Man, that is worth volumes of business books. <laughs> uh, it, I like the other delineation point that you said here, which is employee engagement versus employee involvement. There's a big difference and employee engagement can take on this HR buzzword, you know, frou-frou. Right. It's touchy-feely. Yeah. <laughs> right. But employee involvement, and that's really what people want. They, they want to be heard and they want to be part of the solution versus edicts coming down from on high. Um, and I, you know, and I do want to pivot over to CEO focus and that's uh, when you and I first met, even though we both have um, some uh, crossing over at a place called Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, but we had to meet in, in Charlotte, North Carolina to um, understand that, which is really cool. Um, so our last guest um, on this program was Spencer Luters, and he's on your uh, one of your uh, CEO focus peer-to-peer -peer boards, and he gave you a, a great shout out as as you deserve to be given a great shout out. Um, there are lots of great boards out there. There are you know great programs, whether it be Vistage or other peer-to-peer -peer groups, and you know somebody taking you through scaling up or through EOS. Um, but there are very few people that are running or chairs of those boards or roundtables, I think, that have the chops to be able to step in and take over someone else's business. And um, I want you to talk, if you're willing, about a situation that you've had to actually do that and um, you know, in talking about succession planning and that sort of thing. And then I want to back up into a little bit more about what the boards do. But can you talk to us about that situation as much or as little as you want to talk about? Okay. Well, uh, yeah, let me, let me share it with you because there's, there's, there's also another point to it. Um, first off, I had one of the members of my board, he was with me for um, several years. A lot of issues in his business, lots of problems. We were working our way through them. And, and we literally had it running pretty clean for about three, four months. And we're pretty happy with the results. Um, he uh, passed away suddenly. 
In fact, I was on my way to a, one of my board meetings when his, the phone rang and it was his wife. And his guy, his name was Jeff, by the way. He says, Jeff had a heart attack. What do I do? He passed away a couple of days later. And she's crying, of course, and all upset. And my immediate reaction was, you take care of your family, I'll take care of the business. And a few months prior, we had all our board members put together what we called their plan B's, which was a document to be held by their spouse in a safe, perhaps by their attorney, uh, and some also by me, that had everything. Who to call, and, who to call if something happens to them, you know, bank account information, all the login information, uh, life insurance policy, investment accounts, everything. Jeff had done that and I had a copy. Jeff's wife had a copy in her safe, but didn't think about it, know about it. She called me because she was all I could, all she could think of was who, who can give me advice here. Jeff's plan B actually said, first thing that happened is to call me. <laughs> And second thing was he could trust me to run it till we could figure out what to do with it. So I came in to run it. I put a couple people in charge and I started uh, helping keep, keep it operating. I looked at the value. I spent a lot of time with the widow and I told her that very frankly, that I, the business probably wasn't worth enough to, because she, she's fairly young, to support her the rest of her life. We needed to get the value up. So I agreed to stay working with it. I moved my office into their facility. I do have a good management team now and I'm there overseeing it. Um, I went in between meetings, I'm in their office instead of my own office anymore. Um, and we're driving the value up. And uh, fortunately for this, this company and the pandemic, things have gone great. <laughs> so we're, yeah. we're working hard at getting the, the value uh, built up. But to, cut, to circle back, I like to have fun leading a business. And here I am advising 30 or so other business owners, and I'm having a ball running this place. It's fun every day. <laughs> so I never lost it. And, and it feels really good to do it. <laughs> so I don't mind it. <laughs> I, I love that. And the fact that, um, you know, I think it's invaluable as one of, my friends has said, and, and is actually uh, one of Robert Fish's clients, uh, coaching clients, he said, it's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar. And that's why I think it's so powerful to have somebody outside as a mentor, as a coach, as an advisor. But you need to pick those advisors carefully as well. And it's not to diminish others that don't have the kind of business experience, et cetera. But um, again, very few chairs that I know could actually, are, are that intimately involved with someone in one of their round tables or one of their boards that they understand the business well enough that they could actually go in and run it and then not just stabilize it, but to help grow it, which I think is really powerful. So I'm going to take you back to CEO focus and give the listeners a little bit more background as to what is a peer-to-peer -peer advisory board and and a group like what you're you're running a number of these groups. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little bit more about that and why you chose that platform versus other platforms? And you don't have to disparage any other platforms out there, but just mm -hmm. your 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 thoughts. Okay, so. Um it's very satisfying me to help other business owners. And that's why I do it. People ask me when I started this, um, I must sleep better at night now that I'm not trying to turn around another business, my own businesses or, or a business for somebody. And the answer was, no, I don't. So now back when I was only no longer had a business to run um, and was only had clients businesses. I said, no, I don't sleep better at night. I have 30 businesses that keep me up at night, not just one. <laughs> okay. And, and maybe that's the difference is I do get involved. I do get, I get into detail. And if you're going to get an advisor to, to help you with your business, um, the secret is be wide open, tell them everything, don't hold anything back. And if they have the chops to do it, they can help you. Um, I have an ability 
to size up a business model quickly. I understand how to change and modify them. Uh, there's a book out there called Business Models for Dummies. I was a contributor to that. <laughs> I think I was the dummy, but I was a contributor to that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, so there's, uh, that's part of why I can do it. But, but I think, you know, walking through what I do, um, I bring business owners together to essentially serve as each other's board of directors or board of advisors. Having served on boards of directors, boards of advisors, and peer advisory boards, I can tell you that the only place where things are, should be good is on the peer advisory board. We, go look with the, we follow with the golden rule, do unto others as you do unto yourselves. So when we review a business plan, because peer advisory boards, you meet once a month, you share issues in your own business, but each month you review somebody's business plan and we do it unlike a Fortune 500 or, or a regular board of directors. We don't attack the plan. We don't grill, the, grill people about it. We ask questions in a nice way and we get answers in a nice way. And we get engaged in a conversation and we work towards solutions. Um, frankly, other boards prefer to have that very aggressive approach. You know, we're gonna put you through the ringer when you present your plan. We don't put anything through a ring, anybody through a ringer. We help them. And that's what I like, okay? And, I, and I've, th that's what makes mine work. So part of what makes mine work so well. And the other really is everybody's open. There's no secrets. I mean, there's clearly no secrets. The problems are out there for everybody to, do, to, to deal with. If there's issues that, that my clients don't want to bring to the board, then they'll bring them to me first and we'll talk about them. And we'll figure out how they can present them to the board if, or even if they should be. You know, I've certainly heard, heard enough personal problems that they didn't want to share and enough business issues that embarrass them. They might embarrass them. Mm -hmm. um, and I give advice. You know, I, 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 I kid, but I, I'll tell, I've told Gary and many other people, if you have somebody you want that needs some advice that I might be able to get on one of my board, boards, I promise you I'll go spend an hour or two with them. They will leave with advice, even if they're not joining. Because I just can't help but give advice. Um, and I drive for understanding and all our members drive for understanding. You know, and, and frankly, if you want to know how well it works, I got, I, my, I opened with 13 members. I, I, I did a program at NASCAR hall of fame. I had uh, 180 people show up. I had 13 members within three weeks. Seven of those members are still with me 10 wow. years later. Works pretty good. Yeah. So you, you've hit on this a little bit, but you were talking earlier about you've, you've still got it. You still have fun when you're running businesses and things like that. Why did you make this transition to coaching, consulting, running these advisory boards instead of continuing to try and start up a new company or go into a company and turn it around? Why make that pivot if you're still having fun running a business? Well, Frankly, this, you know, it's been, it was nine years since I'd run a business when I right. started running one again. Right. Yeah, Although yeah. the business I have, I run, obviously, and it, yep. it, it's not simple. Um, but I just, you know, I, I started thinking, I, I'd finished a turnaround. I, I, had, uh, I had left this business because I was tired of all the travel. I had actually flown a quarter million air miles in 2009, <laughs> and I couldn't take it anymore. I had never saw my family. And, and I decided it was time to move on. And I was quickly talking to quite a number of companies. I, the, the phone rings. When I was avail, available, the phone rings. And I get, you know, vice chairman of this company, president of that company, a variety of people that I've known through the years. They seem to sit, find me and seek me out. Everything I heard in 2010, when I'm dealing, when I'm thinking about what to do, kind of turned my stomach. I'm going, I don't think I want to do this again. Yeah. And so I, I, I literally said, it's time to do something else. And what, what turned me off the most was when I was, you may know the story of, an, of a, I think it was an electric bus company, not too far from Charlotte, um, or hybrid buses, that um, they were in deep, deep trouble. And I had a conversation with them. And it just felt dirty and horrible and I didn't want to have anything to do with them when I was done. As it turns out, they got in trouble because they were putting used parts on the buses. 
new buses with used parts. And they ended up shut down and there were all kinds of lawsuits and everything out of that. Just back, go back, goes back a ways. And, and it was that I kept running into those kinds of things and I just going, no, I, I really don't have the stomach for this. Yeah. And so I chose not to. Yeah. That self-awareness is impressive that, that you can step back away from your situation and really see what you're feeling and understanding and the direction you want to go. Right. And it, and admittedly, at the same time, I'm talking to my friend in Indianapolis who runs peer advisory boards, and he's telling me how I can do it and what to do. <laughs> so, you know, he, he gives give me a great sales job. <laughs> but paying attention to your, your gut is really a critical thing. And um, I don't know, maybe this is, is wrong, but I've seen women do a better job of paying attention to their intuition than men. And I'll include myself in that where I was able to logically go through it and convince myself versus paying attention to my gut. So, you know, kudos to you for that. I've got one more question about um, the peer advisory boards that you run. So you started with the 13, um, the chemistry and especially uh, man, I really love the fact that you you are using this the golden rule as a place a safe zone for your 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 folks to be able to collaborate to expose what they're looking for versus you know beating the chest with as much testosterone as possible. And I've seen those and and it doesn't end well anyway when somebody's trying to outdo somebody else or they're trying to put them through you know hell week or whatever. Uh, you know, this is not Navy SEALs, bud, you know, hell week. Um, but chemistry among those groups, especially in that kind of a format, is really important. How do you, with 30 uh, people, that's probably a few boards that you're yes. running. Um, how do you determine somebody approaches you and says, Jeff, I need your help, and you kind of size each other up, and it seems like a good fit. Then how do you determine where they fit? Um, it, it's, it's a feel. It literally is. I, I size them up and I go, what kind of business is it? And, and what's their behavior like and what their kind of outlook to managing and leading is. And I, and I, I find where that fits in well. Now, not to say that everybody has, has to have the same outlook because they don't, but I know when they may not take certain members seriously or that a certain members may not take them seriously. So I put them in the place where, where I think they'll fit in the most. And, and it is from that initial uh, first or second meeting that I, that I really develop that uh, an understanding of how they would fit in versus the others, you know, um, I, and I've turned a lot of people down over the years too because I realize they're not going to listen or they're, that they, they're, they're either going to come in and dominate, try and dominate, or they're, they're going to um, take everybody's advice and go do something else. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, that's you probably that. why so many people are, are sticking with you, right? To say that seven of the 13 from day one are still mm -hmm. with you. It's likely that's a big attribute, right? You're, you're keeping the high quality of the groups and the advice and the, uh, interconnectedness, things like that, that goes a long way. Right. And, and it's funny because I was in a meeting with one of the members that's been with me since the beginning. And uh, we had a meeting with some uh, financial people and they turned to him and they said, well, if something happens to you, who's going to run the business? To my surprise, he pointed at me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's true. I can run it just fine. Okay. After all those years, I, I've learned a lot. I know, I know how, the, I know how the businesses run. <laughs> okay. And I can do it. Yep. But I, you know, I'm a firm believer that if you know how to run a business, you know how to run any business. You may have to learn the products. You may have to learn some of the processes, but you know, you know how to make a product or a service, you know, how to sell, you know, how to get a customer, you know, how to take care of a customer, you know, you know how to collect the money. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's um, manufacturing widgets or a dry cleaner. Mm -hmm. You can do it. You just need to know how to make widgets or learn how to make widgets or learn how to do dry cleaning. Yep. It, 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 it's not as difficult as it might seem. 
I'll, I'll um, make a statement and then ask a question and then turn it over to Ben. But um, the statement is, you know, you have tremendous amounts of, of accomplishments and yet the, the thing that um, has constantly impressed me since I first met you, I think in 2015 when I came back to Charlotte was just your quiet, soft-spoken confidence, but humility um, and, and regard for other people. Um, and, uh, so that's just a statement. The other statement would be if somebody is looking for, um, a good peer to peer group, they're thinking, Hey, I, I don't have a board. Um, I've seen advisory boards that are just train wrecks. Um, what I've seen with you and the caliber of people that are in your groups, um, I would highly recommend that somebody pick up the phone or look up Jeff Wolfberg on LinkedIn, find him and reach out to him. Um, the final question that I've got for you, Jeff, is, you know, is there one piece of advice besides what we talked about on the front end of this that you would give to an aspiring or a young entrepreneur or early in their entrepreneurial journey? They could be, you know, my age and having left corporate America and decided that they're going to go buy a franchise for the first time. Um, and they're entering a new chapter and a new brave, brave new world for themselves. What other piece of advice would you leave for them in this uh, webinar or podcast? Okay. Well, you, you've kind of left two people. You have the young entrepreneur who's, who's not been out working for somebody else. <laughs> And then you have the guy who says, I've had it with the corporate world. It's time for me to buy something or do something. Yeah. I'll start with the second guy first because I've met him many times. Don't expect people to do anything for you. You have to do it yourself. And I'm very serious. You start a business, you buy a business, and you're, ex you're expecting your franchisor to do something for you or your um, – your uh, suppliers to do something for you or the previous owner to do something for you ain't going to happen. It's all up to you to do it yourself. Um, I mean, I, I've worked with guys who, you know, had an agreement with their franchisor to provide them a 150 leads a year and they only got three mm. and they, they were furious. They didn't get their leads furious. That was ruining my business. I can't succeed. You're not giving me the leads. Why wait for them? Go get your own leads. You know, I mean, it was, it was the simple example. Um, and, and, you know, but you have to do it yourself. You know, you're going to have employees and you're going to have to, you know, you're going to build trust with them and they're going to do work for you. But, you know, you get this thing going or when you start, start with it, you, you, you're on your own. You know, no, no executive from headquarters is going to par parachute in and help you. And yet I've met so many people that think that's what's going to happen. Um, and, and with the young entrepreneur who's starting out, if you've got a good idea, make sure there's a market for it. Make sure it's doable, scalable, growable. But I see an awful lot of guys, they have a product and no market. And then what happens? And I've actually, you know, I don't want to tell you I do any work for free, but I have done a number of things for free. And that's when I find the entrepreneur who started out might be struggling a little bit and the consultants are all over him. And I saw a guy, he had four consultants, each doing something specialized, each of them taking his money every month and he was going broke. Hmm. And I just turned to him, young guy. And I said, fire them all. I'm not charging you. I'll, I'll help you. And I just couldn't stomach seeing that happen. And yet it happens every day. Um, so, um, you know, make sure you got a product, make sure, you, you know, viable product, a viable market or viable service, viable market, you know, and, and, and when you when you go in head first, go in head first, you're going to do it yourself. Don't rely on a bunch of consultants to help you. Um, don't rely on somebody to parachute in and save your day. It's all you. And, and that's my advice. I think that's a perfect way for us to wrap up. There's so many 
so many amazing things in this episode. So we will we'll definitely link to uh, to your LinkedIn page so people can reach out to you if they have okay. any questions. Um, and then is there anywhere else that, that you would like people to go to check you out? Well, my website is uh, cofocusofthecarolinas.com. And, um, yeah, and that, we'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's see, I'm sorry, CEO focus carolinas.com. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and that, that's the place to go, but you know, I'm open to phone calls. I'm glad to help people. If you reach me on LinkedIn, want to talk, I'll call you, give me a phone number. I'll call you. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and like I said, if, I'm always willing to help. I'm a pay it forward guy. I think if, if, if I don't get an engagement with you, you don't join my board. I give you a little help. You might tell somebody else to talk to me when they need help. It's perfect. Well, thank you so Jeff, much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, it was an honor having you on here and even hearing your story and hearing uh, again about boys of the boat. Um, uh, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that book until you mentioned it up again. So lots of really good uh, wisdom and insight into this one. So I'm anxious to get it released. So thank you again. Thank you, Ben. You're, you're an awesome guy that uh, got this thing kick started. So thank you. And thank you guys. I've enjoyed this very much. Good. All right. Take care. Take care. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Yep. You